nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. Behold our God, seated on His throne. Come, let us adore Him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore for him. Good morning. You know, the story is told that Rabbi Stephen Samuel Wise was invited to speak at an anti-Nazi rally in Brooklyn, New York. And as a result of re accepting that invitation, he received numerous threats. Many people threatened to take his life if he showed up at the rally and chose to speak. Well, he did go to the rally. And as he stood at the podium, here's what he said. He said, I have been warned to stay away from this meeting under pain of being killed. If anyone is going to shoot me, let him do it now. Because I hate being interrupted. And I think most of us would agree with Rabbi Wise. We don't like distractions. We don't like being interrupted. When we are focused and zeroed in on a task, the last thing we want is someone interrupting us, robbing us of our time and our energy. I know that when I was first starting out in ministry and my kids were really small, I'd be talking after church with some members, we'd be standing at the back. It would drive me crazy when my kids would come up and get in between us and tug on me and say, Daddy, Daddy. They only did that a couple of times. But I had to remind them, I'm in a conversation here. You don't interrupt. That's rude. And we don't like interruptions as a whole. Generally, we don't want interruptions to whatever it is we're doing, whether it's a, a ringing phone at work or ringing doorbell while we've sat down for our evening meal, or, or maybe, maybe it's a ringing alarm clock when we're trying to sleep. We don't like interruptions. They are criminal in a world of orderliness and compulsiveness. You know, so many of us, are so zeroed in and what it means to keep a schedule and to, and to be busy and productive. We know that interruptions are a part of life, but we also know that they, they interrupt our way of life. When I was in college at Harding, I was a non-traditional student going back after having attended college, like normal people do after high school and all that. I go back, and now I'm 27, 28 years old, and I'm taking this class called Wisdom Literature. It's a difficult class. And so I have some questions for the teacher, and I, I go up to the second floor of the Bible building, and, and his door is cracked open, and I knock on it, and he never looks up from whatever it was he was doing. He says, come in. And I go in there, and I'm asking him a question. You can tell he didn't want any part of talking to me. And so I, I asked my question, he gave me a short, terse answer, and I walked out, and I got about five feet from his door, and it slammed, telling me, don't come back. Don't interrupt me. I don't want any more interruptions. And, you know, I, I can't really blame him, because I've probably been guilty of thinking that anyway. 
You know, you're sitting at your desk and you're trying to prepare for Sunday and you're banging out some thoughts on a keyboard or you're studying and your mind is zeroed in and focused on whatever it is that you need to be focused on. And maybe the secretary says you got a phone call and it's one of those telemarketers that slipped through. You know, they're getting pretty crafty now. So, hey, Chris, how's it going? I'm like, who are you? It turns out they're trying to sell me something, right? I, know, I always know that it's, a, that it's a telemarketer when they use my whole first name or when they say Pastor Chris. You know, I know probably that's not somebody that's really wanting to talk to me. But, you know, you're sitting there and you're trying to get things done and people are, are, are pulling you away from that. It can, it can get frustrating, can't it? I think we all know what that's like. If you look at Mark chapter 5, where we're studying this morning, you see that Jesus is being interrupted. Of all the things that we can gain from this passage, one of the first things that sticks out is the interruptions. And what we see with Jesus is that the interruption is really where ministry truly begins. You start in verse 21, it reads, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a, a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now there's a whole lot that we can dig into here. The first thing I want you to realize is that Jesus has attained rock star status at this point. He can't go anywhere without a crowd following him. And the crowds followed him for different reasons, right? Not everybody was enamored with him and wanted to hear what he had to say uh, as far as because they wanted to be a disciple. Some were just wanting to trap him, right? But anyway, he had this large crowd. He was bigger than the Beatles at this point, so much so that he had to get in a boat a little ways from shore in order to preach and teach for fear of being engulfed by the crowd. But again, of all the things you notice from this passage, one of the things that you see stand out above them all is the interruption, right? And this wasn't the only time that Jesus had been interrupted. You know, we have the, the leper that stops him in Mark chapter 1, or the time that the paralytic man is let down through the roof in Mark chapter 2, or the man with the withered hand in Mark 3, the blind man at Bethsaida in Mark chapter 8, or the father of the boy who was suffering from violent seizures in Mark chapter 9, and even blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. We could go on, but you, you get the idea. This is not the only time that Jesus is being interrupted. In fact, his earthly ministry was filled with interruptions. Even his interruptions were interrupted. And yet, as you can imagine, 
Jesus dealt with them. He dealt with them in a, in a kind and compassionate way oftentimes, especially when it was people that were endearing to him that he wanted to help. Can you imagine Jesus in the throes of these interruptions saying to people who were seeking healing, desperate for a cure, can you imagine him saying, look, folks, I've got a lot to do. I've got a headache. Could you just leave me alone? Or can you imagine when he was preaching and they lowered that man, that paralytic man, through the roof? Can you imagine Jesus stopping and saying, hey, what are y'all doing? Can't you see I'm working here? Jesus had a passion for compassion, and he showed it over and over again, and he turned those interruptions into ministry opportunities. In fact, he made a career of taking those interruptions and turning them into opportunities to glorify God. You know, there's always a reason behind the interruption, isn't there? I mean, traffic may be piled up because there's been an accident. You know, your, your, your lights may be off because lightning struck a transformer and so you don't have any power. You're late to work because the kids are sick. Whatever the story, there's usually some rationale behind whatever it is that has interrupted your regular routine. And Mark presents us with two women here that seem to be on two different ends of the spectrum. You have this, this young 12-year-old girl, and Jewish tradition tells us that when a, a young lady was 12 years old in one day, she became a woman. And so here's this young girl on the threshold of womanhood, lying on her deathbed. And she is the daughter of a ruler of the synagogue. Now, the background behind that is the ruler of a synagogue would have been charge of all the synagogue activities, the allocation of duties. He would have been a very respected man in the community. He would have been a high-standing individual. Not necessarily the kind of guy that you would expect to come to Jesus, fall at his feet, and beg him for help, knowing the tension between Jews and Jesus. But when your daughter's dying... You can throw prejudice out the window. You can throw pride out the window. You get on your knees in desperation because you have no other options. And then you have this woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She is dealing with a malady that was quite common back in this day and time. In fact, the Jewish Talmud listed some different cures some medicinal and some nothing more than witchcraft or superstition. In fact, one of them was that you were to take the ashes from an ostrich egg and carry them around in a linen rag in the wintertime and a cotton rag in the summertime, and that would cure you. Another was that you took the barley corn from the dung of a white female donkey, and that would supposedly cure you. So there were a lot of different cures out there, at least suggestive cures that didn't always work. This woman had been to several doctors. You've got to understand that doctors in this day and time were not highly esteemed and well-respected like doctors in our society. In fact, doctors in this day and time were really nothing more than con artists most of the time. They'd take your money and not make you well. In fact, they'd make you worse many times. And so you have this woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, and she's not getting better. In fact, she spent all her money trying to get better, and now she's living in abject poverty unclean, unable to get out in public because of her uncleanness. Here we have this story within a story. 
You notice that? It's kind of a, a funny thing happened on the way of raising the dead story. And so you have Jairus who's desperate because his daughter is on her deathbed. And Jesus is going to raise her, although Jairus didn't understand that he could, he could raise her from where he was at. He didn't have to be there and be present. But on the way, he is stopped and interrupted by this woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, both in desperation. But it's interesting how the Bible draws a contrast here. And we see that over and over again in Scripture, don't we? That the Bible majors in contrast. You have light and dark, life, death, those kind of things. But here you have a contrast, don't you? And I don't think it's a coincidence that, that this, this father, this ruler of the synagogue, this MVP in the community, his daughter is dying. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have this woman who is unclean, living in abject poverty. A great contrast here that I believe shows us that there were no boundaries to Jesus' compassion. That he had a passion for compassion and there was not a line of demarcation there. That passion for compassion was for the rich elite and it was for those dregs of society. There's a man by the name of Howard Giddens who died at the age of 98. And many years ago, Mercer University established the Howard P. Giddens Endowed Chair for University Ministry. And the reason that they established this this chair, this position, the reason why they put his name on buildings, the reason why they, they recognized him is because his life was a ministry of interruptions. His office was at the end of a long hallway, and he kept his door open at all times. His desk faced his door. So when anyone came up to the second floor of this particular building where his office was and looked down the hallway, they could see him staring out his door, that door that was always open. He invited interruptions. And you think to yourself, well, that's great, but I can't do that. I would never get anything done if I did that. I have people constantly knocking on my door when it's closed. I sure can't leave it open, right? And maybe Mr. Giddens is an extreme example. I'm certainly not suggesting that you can never shut your door, that you can never get anything done. But perhaps it would do us all good to remember that as Christians, we should be in the people business. We've got a message to share. And you can't share it if you close yourself off from the world, right? And it's many times in the interruptions that we have an opportunity to share that message. So I would ask you this morning, how open is your door? Do you give off a, my door is always closed vibe? You know, because as Christians, we can't walk around with the do not disturb sign on our neck all the time. How inviting are you? Now there's danger to this, right? There is danger in being more inviting. Because if you're too inviting, people are going to take advantage of it, right? There will always be those people who we call dump trucks. Where if you give them an opportunity, they're going to come in and they're going to unload everything. And they're going to tie you up because they are not aware enough to realize that they are taking too much of your time. We're going to consider those outliers this morning, okay? So everything that we're talking about, your mind may be going to, yeah, but I've got this one guy at work or I've got this one lady at school or whatever. Let's set those to the side. Because we all know that there are those people who just do not have the awareness to realize that they're taking too much of your time. They just want to dump off their trash. 
They want to wallow whatever, and they're not really paying attention to the fact that you've got stuff to do. Let's set that aside for a moment. And let's talk about the fact that if we're not careful, we can remain closed off and we can treat everyone as if they're dump trucks and not give anyone an opportunity, not have our door open enough. And that's difficult. It's difficult for me. You know why? When I was in Cassville, Missouri, I lived right next to the church building. We didn't have a secretary or anything. We'd, I'd go over, I'd work till lunch, and then in the afternoon, a lot of times, I'd spend it drinking coffee with members at their house and just talking. I can't do that here. The workload's too great. You just, you, it's hard to keep up with just the people who are in the hospital, much less you know, the people who, who need other things. Everyone wants to talk to the preacher. And that makes it tough. We've got nine wonderful elders that have said, hey, let us know. We'll, we'll meet with anybody. Yeah, but I want to meet with you. That's tough. When you've got 700 plus people, you can't meet with everybody, right? And one thing that I've learned, I can't get up here on Sunday and say, well, guys, you know, I don't really have anything prepared. I had a tough week. I had a lot of people coming in, and I just didn't get anything done. Sorry. That doesn't fly, right? Everybody wants you to hit a home run on Sunday or at least a triple. And so it's difficult, right? So by the very nature of the position I'm in, the door has to be closed sometimes. There has to be a filter. You can't meet with everybody. Somebody else has to meet with them, right? I, that's one thing that I'm grateful for is we have a staff and we have elders here that are willing to meet with anyone. No one gets turned away, but it's hard if you want to meet with the preacher. And I feel guilty about that a lot of times. So there's this tightrope that you have to walk. You've got to get stuff done. But you also realize that your work is people. Your ministry is a ministry of interruptions, really. In my 20-something years of preaching, that's one thing that I've learned, is that people are not a distraction. I guess sometimes they might be. But overall, people are not an interruption. They are your ministry. They are your work. And there's always a cost of being involved. I mean, that's why we don't like interruptions in the first place, because they cost us something, don't they? They cost us our time and our energy. They might even cost us our money. But you know what they cost us more than anything? You. They cost you you, because you have to invest. You have to give of yourself, your time and your energy. If you've noticed, anytime Jesus took an opportunity to heal or to teach, it took something out of him, Right? Even Jesus found time to break away from the crowd and to be alone with the Father. So it's okay that we do that. Even Jesus closed the door sometimes. That's okay. But if you invest in people, if you make a ministry out of interruptions, it's going to cost you. It's like the world-class athlete. If they want to be good, they've got to invest everything they have into it. The Olympic athletes got to invest everything into their sport. The concert violinist has to invest everything into being the best. No matter what it is you do, if you want to be great at it, you will be exhausted at the end of it. And it's the same with this. We see that with Jesus. That power had left him. Why? He felt something leave him. When you invest in people, it's going to cost you. We follow in Jesus' footsteps when we are willing to spend not just our money, not just our time or our energy, but our heart and our strength for others. 
And you know what? This won't always pay off. It won't. When you give your heart, you will often experience heartache. It's just the way it is. Teachers know this as much as anybody. Teachers invest their lives in their students, the really good ones. And they see a young person with potential. But they know that they're coming from a background that's not conducive to them succeeding. So the teacher takes extra time with them, invests in them personally to get them to a point where they recognize their talent and their ability so that they can succeed in life. And maybe years later, that, that student comes back and says, thank you so much. You are one of the main reasons why I'm successful today. Those are great stories. But all too often, the story is the teacher takes out the newspaper and opens it up, and there on the front page is that student arrested for criminal activity or whatever. The cards were stacked against them from the very beginning, but that teacher felt like, I can save him. I can help her. And it just didn't work out. And that happens because when you invest your heart, your life into something, especially people, they're going to let you down, right? My friends, for every success story, there are many stories about the one that got away. And it's easy for us to get discouraged. It's easy for us to say, what's it all for? Does any of this make any difference anyway? And when you feel that way, I want you to think about this. As in Revelation uh, 2, uh, 3 and 10 says, be faithful unto death. And so um, I'm going to ask you, first of all, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes. Based on that confession, I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. Ready? Yeah. Spent my whole life going to church with my mom, my dad never darkening the doors of a church. A few years ago, he had a major interruption in his life. Um, had a heart attack that should have killed him. Not long after that, he had a second heart attack. The first heart attack didn't get his attention. I asked him, I said, Dad, weren't you scared? I mean, spiritually, you're not right with God. He says, I figure I'll let the chips fall where they may. After the second heart attack, though, it got his attention. And he realized that, that he could be gone in an instant. And so we talked more and more. We, we had talked many times over the, over the years. But now he was ready to truly hear what I was telling him. And he said, I, I'm ready to be baptized. That major interruption was an answer to prayer. He almost died. I had prayed, God, whatever it takes to get his attention. Little did I know it would be a near-death experience. And so I had another interruption after talking to him on the phone, I got in my car, I drove the 10 hours one way to Arkansas to baptize him, got in the car and drove the 10 hours back. I had a lot to do that week. It was a busy week, but it was all worth it. And when you think that it's not worth it, or when you feel as though, what is this all for? I mean, am I making any kind of impact? Don't give up. 
take those interruptions and turn them into an opportunity. Ministry is a series of conversations and interruptions. Right, Joe Argijo? Remember that? A few years ago, you call me while I'm at work and say, I think I need to be baptized. I've been studying. I think I need to be baptized. I go to your house. We baptize you in the swimming pool. Wonderful. That was an interruption to my day that I, I certainly welcome. I went to Jerry Doty's store not long ago. Oh, it's been probably several years ago now, seven or eight years ago. Jerry Doty's running Lusky Rhines. I go in there for some cowboy boots. And Jerry comes up to me. He says, hey, before you leave, I want you to meet somebody. He's a young man that works for me. He is a great young man. And I'm trying to get him to come to church. And I go over and I meet Zinni Baeza, who is now a deacon at Oldham Lane. His wife is our secretary. An interruption from buying boots. Whether it's, whether it's a minor interruption or a big interruption, you never know what that's going to lead to. You've got those stories. We all have those stories where it's just an interruption that leads to an opportunity for ministry. Welcome those interruptions. Jesus did, and it made all the difference. Go back to our story. Soak this scene in. Jesus is going to the house of this powerful synagogue official to tend to his sick daughter, and he senses someone in the crowd touch him. And he says, who touched my garment? And the disciples are like, what do you mean who touched your garment? Who didn't touch your garment? I mean, we're in this busy marketplace. I mean, people scurrying around. Everybody probably touched your garment. But Jesus turns to find this woman who was unclean. Now think about that for a moment. She was unclean, which meant that she was not even supposed to be in public. But she was not only unclean physically because she had that issue with blood, that made her unclean spiritually as well. For 12 years, she couldn't worship. She would have been turned away by this ruler of the synagogue who was also in desperation. Think about that for a moment. And so she finds healing. And Jesus doesn't care who she's touched. He doesn't care that, that she shouldn't be in public. He only cares about her need. And he heals her. What was Jairus thinking through all this? He's probably thinking, okay, yeah, that's fine, and good, but we got to go. Come on, Jesus, we got to get to the house. My daughter is dying. Kind of like when you're sitting in the emergency room, you feel horrible, and another emergency comes in that takes precedent over yours, and you're thinking, oh, now I've got to sit here longer, right? That's probably how Jairus was thinking. He was thinking, my emergency's got to be, got to be more important. Of course, he didn't realize who he was dealing with, right? So Jesus comes to his house. And he says, hey, your daughter's not dead. She's just asleep. And everybody laughs and mocks. And Jesus clears the room. He says, all right, get out. Just get out. And he says the words, Talitha kum. Now, maybe you're not as nerdy as me, and maybe you don't wonder how that little Aramaic statement made it in the Greek gospel. But I wonder things like that. And some think that Mark interviewed Peter for his gospel, and Peter certainly would have been there. He would have seen this whole thing take place, this whole episode. And can you imagine how that would stick with you? Can you imagine how that resonated in the mind of Peter and James and John? Talitha kum, which basically just means get up. Just get up. Death didn't know who it was dealing with that day. As soon as Jesus got onto the scene, it was a game changer. You think about how those words would stick in your mind as you saw Jesus come into the room and simply say, Talitha kum. And this young girl, 
on the threshold of womanhood is raised. One of the most moving scenes in Scripture. Imagine the Father in all this. Imagine what must have been going on in his brain. Imagine how different his life would have been after that. Look at verses 35 and following. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. Get up. That's all it took. And you have this ruler of the synagogue, this MVP in the community, that from that point forward had to be changed. Had to be different, right? Jesus displayed, once again, what true ministry looks like. An interruption within an interruption. But it's about people who are desperate. It's about people who need something that only Jesus can provide, and that's what we need to be about. People who can provide something that only Jesus can give them. A need that can only be met in Christ. Let's close with Matthew chapter 25, a very familiar piece of uh, Scripture. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 34. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will inherit eternal life. I want you to consider the things that are mentioned here. This is a parable, as are the other two before it in Matthew 25, that relate to the judgment, that relate to eternal life. And what are the things that are being focused upon here by our Lord on the day of judgment? Did you feed somebody? 
Did you give them something to drink? Did you visit them when they were sick or in prison? Did you give them clothing when they were naked? All things that virtually any of us can do, right? Virtually any of us can do these things. There's no excuse, right? It's not about giving a million dollars to build an orphanage over in Africa somewhere. That's great, but it's simple things. Food, clothing, water. Things that almost all of us can do. And they're tied to the judgment here. You will be judged on whether you did these things or not. In other words, these things are probably a distraction in our lives, right? Anytime we come across somebody wanting these things or needing these things, it's probably going to interrupt our daily flow. Invite those interruptions. Have an open door. Jesus is in the interruptions. And God is looking at your character, not your schedule. Let's pray. Most kind of gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus, for his ministry. May we follow in his footsteps. As disciples, may we seek to take advantage of opportunities that are there that you present to us. May we be about people. May we allow the interruptions to turn into an opportunity to glorify God. Just help us, Lord, to be more like Jesus. Help us to be a church that is of Christ in that we are seeking always to be like Jesus and to make disciples. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Maybe you're not a disciple this morning. Maybe you're ready to start that journey. We want to help you. If we can study with you, if, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, maybe you need the prayers of this church family because you are a disciple and you're struggling, we want to help you. We want to help you get on track and stay on track. So if you have a need, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing. Onward rejoicing, I tread life's way. Higher I'm climbing each passing day. Hilltops of glory in view, where all shall be made new. Hilltops of glory I now can see. Oh, brother, won't you come go with me? Safe on the mountain, I soon shall stand. Hilltops of glory land. Way down in Egypt, mid-burning sand. Moses had started for Canaan's land. Never turn backward, always ascend unto the journey's end. Hilltops of glory I now can see. Oh, brother, won't you come go with me? Safe on the mountain I soon shall stand. Hilltops of glory land. Footsteps of Jesus before us lead. We tread life's journey, his warning seed. Evil allurements cannot prevail. 
I'm on the upward trail. Hilltops of glory I now can see. Oh, brother, won't you come go with me? Safe on the mountain I soon shall stand. Hilltops of glory land.